This is Heidi Matthews On Demand, a podcast about sex, culture, politics, and legal regulation, hosted by me, Osgood Hall Law School professor Heidi Matthews, and my new American husband, David Slavic. In this episode, we sit down with author, columnist, and media personality Michael Malice. Michael is author of the brand new book, The New Right, A Journey to the Fringe of American Politics, and is the host of the You're Welcome with Michael Malice podcast. Michael is a very interesting figure who I can't quite put a finger on. He's got an eclectic past, having co-written Concierge Confidential with Michael Fazio, and two books with D.L. Hughley. He was also the subject of a biographical graphic novel titled Ego and Hubris, The Michael Malice Story. In addition to all this, Michael is a regular contributor to Fox News and the Fox Business Network and has appeared on the Joe Rogan Experience. He is a self-identified anarchist. In our discussion, we talk about what the quote new right is and isn't, Canadian versus American political scandals, the similarities of Hillary Clinton and George W. Bush, state resource allocation, Greta Thunberg, and the real meaning of anarchism. This is episode 11 of our podcast. To date, David and I have independently supported the show. While I largely file my podcast work under what I consider to be my obligation as a professor to to do what we call community engagement, David's time and labor, on the other hand, aren't being compensated. So if you like the show and you'd like to see more of it, please do consider making a contribution via PayPal at donate.hmodpod, that's H-M-O-D-P-O-D dot com. You can also find a link on the show website, hmodpod.com. Please also consider leaving a review on iTunes. With many thanks in advance from David and I, here is our conversation with Michael Malice. Uh, so we are here, David and I, with one Michael Malice. It's sort of an interesting course of events that's taken you here. Maybe not that interesting, (laughs) given that you've already have your life profiled in a graphic novel. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) But, uh, so how did you end up, so you're in my living room, my new living room here in the annex in Toronto. Funnily enough, you're staying down the street even. Yeah. So how is it that you ended up in our living room this evening? Uh, I go on these trips every so often with friends of mine. And I said, all right, when I'm in Toronto, whose show should I do? And the fans recommended you. So I guess they are, uh, (laughs) maybe they're uh, sadists. I do encourage sadism. Oh my God. Do you feel that way? You feel attacked already? (laughs) I feel very attacked. (laughs) Like Laganja Estranda. I feel very attacked. Not as attacked as I felt earlier when I said the word perfect. (laughs) (laughs) So Michael, I think one of the reasons, I'm going to guess what one of the reasons that people uh, propose us. I think you have like a really interesting intellectual sensibility that is challenging and, and irreverent. And I think that that's what we're going for here. Yeah. Um, and you're also brilliant. And I think that's what we're going for. 
Right? Okay, so yeah. one out of two. That's okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> so since you're in Toronto, I wanted to actually just get to your, your philosophy of travel first, because I think that's an interesting jumping off point okay. for you know your philosophy towards everything. Sure. And uh, when you go to a new city, what do you do? Uh, it has to be a walking city, okay. right? So it has to be the kind of place where there's lots of cool neighborhoods and you and your friends can walk you know, around them. So I don't know how to drive. I'm a New Yorker. So, and I also like places that are a little bit um, off the beaten path. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, so we hit, our, our trial run was Philly, which is very close yeah. to New York. Then we did Providence, which was a mistake. Uh, <laughs> we did Montreal for my birthday Lovely. in July, which I loved. And Toronto, I've always said, is my favorite city after New York. So I convinced everyone to come back here. Okay. So, all right. So th- this is like a travel crew that you have. Yeah, we have a good group, and it's 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 really, really, really fortunate that we all have the capacity, professionally and, and socially, to travel, mm-hmm. and also that we all get along. And yeah. and and this is a minor miracle, I feel. Yeah. Um, and it's also, I think, it's very hard for most people. If you're like, "Hey, you should do this. It'll be a lot of fun." Everyone just has these excuses, and it's just like just try, just it's like oh, no, no. and and for example, my friend Phil came with us to Providence. He had just you know had a kid, his daughter, uh, she's like a year old, and I'm like, how often are you going to get a chance to do this? And thankfully, his wife is awesome, and yeah. she's just like, dude, yeah. do it. Yeah. And he's like, I'm so glad I did this. So it's just a lot of fun, and I th- I, 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 I traveling is not expensive. Well, what do you I- mean? I mean, the flights like was like a hundred and fifty. Yeah. The Airbnb yeah. each was two fifty. Yeah. Four hundred dollars in terms of like your life is not that much money. No, no, no. I agree. So here we are talking about political economy already. This is great. I love it. So, okay. Like, yeah. So, but I wanted to get to, and we talked about this prior, like prior to recording, was that you had a, a great insight into travel, and you had said that, and this is sort of part of a. a broader political sense about sort of corporate ownership and what and how they change culture yeah and what was your theory of travel well no i no, that's what you're referring to yeah like i was at lunch and i went full like you know uh hardcore red and i'm like <laughs> i hate this idea that the corporations tell us yeah. that when you go on a trip here's a checklist of 12 things you have to do yeah i'm not going to the top of that tower you guys here the yeah. only <laughs> have here the only interesting building in toronto apparently i don't care uh <laughs> but we went to the saint lawrence market yeah. Yeah. And we went to the aquarium and we explored uh, the distillery district and we yeah. explored uh, uh, Queen Street yeah. and we explored King Street and we're having the best time. Yeah. Have you been to Emma Goldman's house? We're going to do that tomorrow. Okay. Okay. Just want to yeah. make so sure you had that Emma one. Emma Goldman's and- house is interesting because it's a very much a, a Joni Mitchell. They, they tore down a tree and build a parking lot situation. Yeah. <laughs> um, right where Emma Goldman's commune was, there is actually a, uh, is a uh, condo building that is not occupied. Because it's under foreign ownership. Oh, okay. Well, they. So that, you, that's a real Toronto for you, Michael, she, right there. She was exiled from the states when she was deceased, yeah. but they let her be buried in Chicago near the Haymarket yeah. Martyrs, and the dates on her tombstone are wrong. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. So this this particular um, landmark you will still see there, but but the spirit of Emma Goldman is strong in Kensington Market. It's one of the last places where where real estate hasn't beaten the market. It's one of the last places where where there's still squatters. There's a sense of you know uh, sort of communal anarchy, if you will, that really does come through. Um, you know, it's 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 really interesting. You know, a lot of ex ravers there, so you have that plur mentality. Yeah, sure. You know, peace, love, unity, respect—that type of thing. So uh, I think you're going to enjoy it when you get there. And if you, I know, I know you're a bit of a teetotaler. 
Um, uh, I, <laughs> well, I, I can't drink. It makes me meaner. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was the last name like mouse. That's yeah. Awesome. Well, no, because when I like, the, I also get hungover very, very, very easily. And this is also like, if you want to talk about the corporations, the idea that alcohol is the drug of choice yeah. uh, is is demented. Especially like the example in the states that I always use, people is like, what would you rather have? Your dad come home really high, or your dad come home really drunk? Like, who's the worst dad? Who's <laughs> the more dangerous dad? And we laugh, but I mean, yeah. it's it's insane yeah. what is. And the same other thing is that like the same stores um, back in the states that would have been like, you know, don't try weed. They'd have the ads now have the ads for CBD products. Yeah, and it's just it's just. Overnight, it is just, it's just not even, it's very like Orwellian. Like, yeah. oh, we, we were never having those ads. In, in what other ways do, do you see, and I wanted to ask you, because you, you've been here for a day, but you've been to Canada quite a bit. Yeah. Do you see some of that sort of like corporate brand making and, and idea making being different here? Or do you, do you does it feel the same as the States? Uh, okay, you're putting me on the spot. I, I feel and... I, I know the Canadians are going to get very butthurt, and that's fine. I don't feel that Canada has much of its own identity. It's very much a reaction to American identity. So a lot of things are like there's a Simpsons show where they have Shelbyville, which is the town next to Springfield where everything's just a little off. So it's the same kind of thing here. It's a similar brand. Yes, things are bilingual with the packaging, but and people are proudly Canadian, and that's great. But I don't really see the culture being that different other than a lot more passive aggression. Yeah. Yeah. Now you're coming from Brooklyn. Yes. Now, sir. So that's a more aggressive sort of environment. It can oh be. yes. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. We are very aggressive. Now, in Brooklyn. If you're proper Brooklyn, it's, it's, it's aggressive. If you're, you know, sort of a, a, a newbie, it can be kind of passive aggressive. So. Oh no, we're aggressive yeah. to the newbies. That's how you teach no, no, people you social be. decorum. That's how you should be. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so my, my question is that, um, has some of the Midwest influenced Brooklyn as well? You know, sort of that sort of passive aggression. Oh, no, I don't think there's any of that. Time. Okay. I don't okay. think there's any of that. Well, I'm glad to hear Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave aside. I, I'm practicing listening more. <laughs> How's that going for you? It's a challenge, but with challenges come growth. So... <laughs> So I'm working that these two are dying here, trying to keep <laughs> turning purple in front of me. But uh, so, but I want to ask you. So, so this is a, a question that I, I've actually stolen from um, someone who's been intellectually important to me over the years. But so they would David Kennedy, who teaches yeah. at Harvard Law School, but his whole thing absolute and, king. Yeah, it's the king. <laughs> he always says uh, he's a, he's a scholar of international law, but oh. from a sort of what he will what he himself refers to as a sort of heterodox tradition, even though he's not, as he says, a labels guy. We might okay. talk about labels and their utility at some point, because I think that's something that runs importantly through your work. But that's true. He'll always yeah, exactly. And so he'll he always says something really interesting, which is when you have a new person before you or you enter like a new kind of institutional space or an environment where you're not comfortable and you're trying to get to know what's going on, just kind of ask the people or try to figure out internally what their project is, huh. right? Because we're all people with people. Mm -hmm. So he, and I'm just totally yeah, stealing. This is not in my own thing at all. I'm just stealing, lifting this from And me. he would want you to. Yes, <laughs> lifting, <laughs> lifting this from David. So how do you, so I, because as I said, and maybe I think before recording, you know, like listen to some of the episodes of your pod. I listened to you on that D.S. Russell show. Yeah. Um, I did read two chapters of your book and some other things that you had written and as well, the Wikipedia page. Right? 
<laughs> but I was just wondering if, if, but I, rather than Im- impose my own, whatever, yeah. you know, unformed intuitions or thoughts I have, like, what's your, how do you see your project as Michael Mouse? My project. I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd much rather hear your thoughts than tell you my project. Um, in all seriousness, <laughs> uh, my project, I, I think I would say that I am very much a um, Camus person. And that once you recognize his great, I think, insight is once you recognize the inherent absurdity of life, this is a very liberating concept. Mm-hmm. And then everything, and Camus, according to Camus, uh, the basic uh, question of morality is whether or not to kill yourself, right? And once you've decided, okay, I'm not going to kill myself, everything else is gravy, you know? And I think uh, being in a capacity where I, you know, I have two shows, write books, I get to be a, a just unmitigated jackass on Twitter and have this, you know, pay my rent. I'm very, very fortunate. I'm very cognizant that I'm very fortunate. And something I learned, and, uh, you know, people ask me for advice a lot, and I often don't give it. But if it's someone I trust, I'll give them advice is, you cannot plan your life right? What I have found that if you work hard and uh, become a quality person, whatever sense you regard the term quality, opportunities will present themselves to you if only because so few people are quality. Um, So, and I give people advice. I say, hey, if you want to be, I like networking, I've taught, given a couple talks, aspire to competence. Excellence, you can't sustain that long-term, right? But if you are a competent employee, if I can rely on you 100% of the time, you are automatically at the 8th percentile. And even though it's counterintuitive, I think the vast majority of people rather have an employee who says, I'll have it for you Wednesday and gives it to you Wednesday, than says, I'll have it for you Monday and gives it to you Tuesday, which doesn't make sense, but it's it's a psychological thing. And if you are reliable and dependable, that that's really puts you way ahead of the pack. So I have um, 30,000 on open emails and one of my yeah. emails. Like, well, you, you better aspire. Someone should aspire to competent. Okay. Let's, really <laughs> let's aspire. Oh, Heidi, let's aspire. Okay, we can aspire to indifference. <laughs> yeah. let, let's just get to indifference. Like, no, actually, I just read them and I don't care. No, actually, I, I'll, I'll get to that because I, I think you, you make a really key point. And I think it's something that, that we're all trying to find meaning, right? I don't it, think that's true at all. No, I, don't, that, I think most people great. are. Well, that's great. Actually, I think that's most people are desperate to avoid finding meaning. Actually, that's a great question. So, can you can you extrapolate on it? Because I think that's a very important. Because so I much. Think you mean like, expand? No, no, no. I, I actually. No, <laughs> oh my god! I love you so much. Yeah, actually, that's fine. No, what I wanted to say is, uh, I would really like you to expand on <laughs> that idea. Um, and I, because I think so much of what we're seeing in sort of like political thought today, uh, you know, like i.e. Jordan Peterson and many other things is like this is man's search for meaning and it's really important we went to the Jacques Peterson debate and it was just this man trying to find meaning that man trying to find meaning this man talking about toilets this man talking about how he doesn't go to the bathroom enough right, right. and then you know you just really have that sort of like what kind of world we live in and you're saying maybe we're not trying to find meaning I'm just Can saying. I'm just saying That's the vast amazing. majority. I think the vast yeah. majority of people are not capable of critical thought. They're not yeah. interested in independent lives. Mencken yeah. said the average man does not want to be free. He merely wants to be safe. Is it dangerous to push people into those situations? Well, I don't know if this is a function of culture, biology, or government schooling for decades, based on the Prussian model of getting everyone to be factory ready. Cogs, I don't know. And it sounds pompous, and I'm fine with it sounding pompous. It's I'm speaking my truth. You're on the right podcast. Yeah, but it, it's. <laughs> 
uh, it's amazing how you, right away when you hear someone use the word uh, weird as a stigma or a pejorative, right away you know this person is violently opposed to that which is new to them. Yeah. And new can be new and problematic and, and troubling and a problem. Mm-hmm. The, why is there a, a spider in my house? Yeah. Or new could be you know growth, like yeah. you said. And they Jason don't curry for the first time. Yeah, yeah. They don't think in those terms. Yeah. Uh, they want your wife to look a certain way, and this is the music you listen yeah. to, and this is what your house looks like. Um, and they're glad to have those choices taken uh, from them. So they're not looking for meaning at all, yeah. and they're trying to avoid having to look for meaning, or they're just just maybe not wired that way. I can't. It's hard to get into that mindset because it's so fundamentally different from my own. Yeah. Is your audience people who are looking for meaning or people who are are avoiding meaning or people who would like to step out of meaning for a second? I think my audience is losers and haters. And and every time I speak of the losers and haters, I do so with great affection. It's not their fault they were born fucked up. (laughs) I think that's beautiful. You know, uh, we have have a large audience of academics. Oh, you guys are the villains. The academics are the villains. So it's definitely people who do not think highly of academia. Not as bad as we're made out to be. No, you're um, worse. You're much well, worse. You're much worse. That's that's why I, we that's I, I, I need the wall. Ask you about the, the role for losers and haters in the world. Like <laughs> we we th- like I was thinking about the Joker movie, and this is like really hit me lately because they, they, as soon as that movie came out, you had, it hasn't like, come out yet though. It has. Well, as soon as you know, it was about to come out, they were saying you had your like Lauren Dukas of the world. You know, like the in girls. You know she's not. Saying? She's not in girl anymore. Not anymore. Not anymore. Now she's the out girl. You saw what happened to her. I don't know who this person yeah. is. Oh, you keep yeah. trying to tell well, Okay, you don't want to know. She's an, she's an archetype, if you will. Yes, even, she is. Yes, 100%. Long, long after Lauren Duca is gone, Lauren Duca will live on. Yeah, yeah. And, she's an archetype. You know, and you want to say that you want to get to the point where, like, like as soon as the movie came out, because people who are subaltern could relate to it, people were pissed about it. Yeah. Why do you think that was? I, I, I mean, I think there is this very au courant worldview that low status males both don't exist and should be derided and suck at a buttercup. And it's all these weird contradictory ideas and low status. Anyone is not a great place to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly you would at the very least have sympathy, you know, especially if you're on the left leftism mm-hmm. essentially is if someone is low status in some sense to kind of help them yeah. or have sympathy for them. That's yeah. what leftism inherently means. Right. Right. Wing ism is empathy for the strong and the powerful. Mm-hmm. So it's very, um, and it's also very odd to me. Uh, and I, odd is a bit of me being a, using a euphemism that it'd be like, Oh, well, you know, you're 16, you know, you are a loser, right. By every metric. And be told, well, you know, your ancestors ran things for a long time, so tough shit. It's like, well, that's not really helping that 16-year-old <laughs> yeah. now, is it? Like, yeah. what do you want to do, read a history yeah. book and be like, wow, I wish I was in Columbus's time. Yeah. That yeah. would make me feel good about myself. They haven't, they haven't ran their own their parents' car. Yeah, yeah. Know, it's, it's, or the lawnmower. Right. <laughs> so it's it's so I think there it very often it's very easy, whoever and maybe this is an inevitable aspect of culture. At any moment, someone's going to be the whipping boy. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only will they be the whipping boy, they will be mocked for resenting being whipped. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's it's like, yeah, if you're this kind of um, uh, maladjusted young male, like you're you're supposed to be a punchline. And it's like, it's, it's you know what, being a maladjusted young male, it's, it's, it's not that fun. Yeah. Being maladjusted, uh, any uh, background is not going to be fun. Yeah. 
No, I, I think that's really important because um, just acknowledging that fact is really important. And then when you move past that acknowledgement and think, what is what is the next step in culture where we think if that is the the, the place that people are put, do what do we do? Develop like a social caste system here? But like, I, I, like, the, if you don't get laid enough, you, you can't be a leftist. Yeah, I, I think that's the, that's one of the big distinctions between right and left is whether a caste system is inevitable and if it's inevitable, whether it's desirable. So I think that would be one of the big criterions that determine right versus left. Yeah. So we all know that language doesn't actually represent a thing in itself, right? So we language is a thing that we have in order to communicate, but it's always a bit of it's a bit of a like discursive process. We're constantly modifying, but there's never like a perfect thing you're going to achieve. So all of that being said, um, all of us are going to end up in a situation where, for ease of reference, we're referring to things like left and right even though we know or we hope that we know that that doesn't actually perfectly map on to like, a, you know, a definite constituency or a constituency that has a uniform mode of thought or something like that. And I think that's something that comes part for me. And again, and I was only able to read part of the book, but the sure. part that I did read seemed to me to be a part of, again, right. Your project in some sense was to humanize and to differentiate the people that constitute those categories, yes. because all too often we talk about, the so-called left and the so-called right um, without personalizing yes. those words, right? And, you know, we're talking about people in the world who do things, right? Just as you were, you know, people, part of the anger or the um, dissatisfaction or discomfort that came along with the reaction to the Joker movie, right, might have been exactly that move to personalize or humanize, for lack of a better word, that person. Because, I, I mean, and, and, and I'll say this again, I, and not not because I'm attached to categories, but I wonder whether when we talk about left and right, there's this middle category that often gets le left out, right? Like, so that of the classical liberal. No, I don't think there's being, a middle category. No? I think this okay. is a binary uh, uh, choice, which for characterization, um, this, you could be a right-wing classical liberal or a left-wing classical liberal. These are these are ways of viewing uh, culture and society that are necessarily governmental like if you're empathizing with the strong, you could be left politically or right politically in terms of who you're voting for, yeah. you know, but you're still, this is a worldview. Mm. Okay. So this that's precedes, really precedes politics. Okay. So that's a really interesting question because you talk about the new right. Yeah. And is the new right a left political project? No, it's a full right. right. So the new, right. yeah, it's yeah. totally right wing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's interesting. So have there been left political projects that have had right elements? Uh, sure. I think the Soviet Union, the love of hierarchy there mm -hmm. is very much a right wing aspect. Yeah. Um, uh, militarism, I think, traditionally is a right wing uh, worldview. So that's associated with right wingism. Mm -hmm. um, but to your point about humanizing, yeah, I, I find it very, very uh, dangerous when people like to think that like the, the, the rise of Nazism in Germany, like we're like these were like Martians. Like these were people who saw what was happening and then went home and played with their kids and tickled their baby and, you know, had stomach aches and headaches. And it would be very convenient if they were from another planet and they didn't have psychology like we do. And that's not the case at all. So anytime you have people being like, oh, you know, these freaks, it's like, no, no they're a lot closer to you than you would like. Yeah. And it's really kind of. Uh, would be very convenient for you to kind of arm's length it, uh, but that's just not how culture works. And it, I mean, the states. I mean, again, you're going from Bush to Obama to Trump. You know, with with the same population. This is, you know, this just speaks to how quickly uh, political and worldviews can change and get ascendancy. So, yeah, if you're trying to, and also just literally 
these are literally human beings. Yeah. So when you are trying to dehumanize right away, you are false. Yeah. And so uh, this so this conversation is like meandering and unstructured. But sure. I have to lean into that maybe because it's a lot of fun. And so yeah. um, whatever you're, I'm not going to, I'm not an academic. I don't like this. No, I don't. I, well, I mean, I, yeah, that's great. I, that's great. That's really great. So, Perfect. So, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> so, but like this category of the weird. So I've been doing. I'm writing a piece right now on the notion of like creepiness and the. Well, that's very much an, a yeah. term that's being used right now as yeah. to being dismissive. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So the, I just as another kind it's, of because, and it's such a wasp term. It's such tell a, me more about that. Well, it's such there this, is a racialization to it. Well, it's such yeah. this bougie like wasp. Like oh, he's not our kind of people, yeah. right? Yeah. So creepy is just like yeah. I don't. It, it, it's such a non. I'm sorry to interrupt you though. It's no. such a non-term because yeah. it's like inarticulately bad. Yeah. It's just like a madman's wife. Yeah, you know, like it's like like we don't like the Jews that live up the neighborhood because they're creepy. Yeah, it's, it's like, like a cabbage over there. You know, some weird. Yeah, no, it's, you know, you it's, it's, it's right. It's right. It's yeah. things like that. Not our kind of people. Yeah. And and it's amazing again when leftism and urban leftism especially is about welcoming in the innovative and the strange. And it's like, oh, that's that not that kind of innovative and strange. It's an innovative and strange that I know with and, and I'm comfortable with. It's like that's how it works. That's yeah. not what innovation means. No, exactly. And like there's. So it turns out that as of a couple of years ago, there's this whole like um, burgeoning of academic literature studying the nature of creepiness. It's not in my field. Like I, I'm a legal academic. This is like in the field of psychology. But the stuff I've been reading is super fascinating because it says precisely what you just caught on to, right? Is that the language of creepiness and weirdness is meant is is language that we deploy when we're faced with. Um, ambiguous situations yeah right? so situations we don't know what to do but you know we we refuse so maybe this goes back to, to your earlier point actually we're not actually looking to understand oh, no, no, we're no. looking to push away right right and and you know that that kind of language allows us to do that easily and also it allows the pushing away to take on some kind of like moral um overtones yeah, right? yeah. it's in group versus out group signaling it's just yeah. basically this is out group you know and do, you, do you think that like by categorizing the people you're, you're also giving yourself license like you're saying like i am better because i am defining what is oh yeah and i'm in a position if you are if you are defining somebody else you that means you're asserting dominance over them because you're in a position to define them so to go back to your listeners, where you had you had asked if you said oh, they're they're freaks and weirdos and I love them, With haters and losers. Haters and losers. <laughs> yeah, it's a charge. Right, it's a charge. By, by defining them, do you get to be in charge? Of course, I'm in charge. My show. <laughs> Absolutely, it's no pretense. <laughs> it's not. It's not. It's not the listener show. It's it's my, my show. Yeah, yeah. Of course. <laughs> Um, so the book is called The New Right, A Journey to the Fringe of American Politics. Mm -hmm. And so it's like super recent, just came out. Yeah. Um, and I want to hear more about uh, how you came to write the book, but also like the, the actual the actual how, right? The methodology that you followed, because there's talk in here of visiting with and getting close to, right? Um, in ways that made some people uncomfortable. You talk about how your friends were a little bit uncomfortable with you attending, with you attending certain parties or whatever. So I just want to know, like, why did you write the book, and and what did the process of writing the book involve in terms of who you were speaking to? Yeah. So a lot of my um, uh, uh, right anarchist friends were turning to this is a few years ago toward a movement at the time which was called the Dark Enlightenment or Neo Reaction hashtag NRX on Twitter. And it was very interesting because they were 
you know, mentioning all these blogs and websites and Twitter users and social media that I'd never heard of. And I'm very familiar with how culture works, which is it comes from the margins and then, you know, the edgy people appropriate it. And then the, you know, corporate America uh, consumes it and <laughs> excretes it for the sake of the masses who can then consume it whole. And one of the examples I use uh, in the later in the book is the, who is John Waters, you know, muse drag queen in Pink Flamingos, which is from 71 at the very end of Pink Flamingos, which was only x-rated you can only watch it at midnight and adult divine literally eats a pig a piece of dog shit right uh cut to 15 years later divine is the model for ursula in the little mermaid so you have this as edgy as possible and now it's being presented disney which is as unedgy as possible to regular children so this is how you know culture proceeds and when you are in the center like those people were talking about earlier imagine it being the center of a circle Someone is far away from you. They're equidistant, whether they're an innovator or a lunatic. You have no capacity for determining. So you have to look at other cues to kind of uh, tell you. So I knew, okay, this is going to be something because at the time, and still there was no intellectual momentum on the right. Uh, conservatism does not really have any new ideas. Uh, and, and it's certainly not innovative in, in any way, even if you, regardless of its veracity. And I'm like, all right, th these people have, for better or worse, intellectual momentum because they're presenting both new ideas and old ideas in new ways. And they're doing it in ways that are, are move people's emotions, both in terms of people who are getting upset by this and getting people excited, uh, you know, for this. You know, I, I was swimming in these circles for a while and I mean, it's a huge range because I define the new right, um, let's see if I get the definition exactly right, as a loosely connected group of individuals united by their opposition to progressivism, which they perceive to be a thinly veiled fundamentalist religion dedicated to egalitarian principles and intent on world domination via globalist hegemony. And I actually rattled that definition off on top of my head, when I, and I haven't had to change it since. But since they're all, the only thing that Weirdly, you're not- Weirdly, it's in our progressive handbook. <laughs> uh, the, the only thing that they have in common is what they're against and their worldview. So you will have the full-blown uh, neo-Nazi types. Uh, you will have the monarchists. You will have the, let's have a military coup, the people who worship Pinochet. You'll have the techno-anarchists. You'll have the transhumanists. The only thing that Venn diagram has in common is basically their perception of the world and who the enemy is. So what what did you discover the the strengths of some, of actually having common enemies and what the weaknesses are of having common enemies? Well, as a tie, I think the strength is it's a lot easier to have a conversation if everyone is speaking the same language, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're agreeing on certain core principles, like this is how, and I don't mean the left, I mean specifically evangelical progressivism, how it gets over then you could be like, all right, what do you do now? And what are the different answers? And and a lot of, I mean, there's a lot, of, the thing that people, you know, don't appreciate is groups are like fractals, right? When you subdivide the group, you're going to have the same subdivision subdivide. So every, the right wing sings the left as a monolith. And I have to sit them down. I'm like, do you really think the Bernie people don't like really, really hate Hillary and regard her correctly as a corporatist warmonger? Like, I, I mean, do, do you seriously think that they're fine with her? Um, or that like the Trump people don't hate the Romney people, yeah. but then you get down and it's like, you will have these, like the racists will like hate the ones who aren't anti-Semites 
you know, because they're like, that's the biggest issue is the Jews. And it's like, you're an idiot. Like, it's not, you can't reduce it to one factor. So it's, it is like you're laughing, but it's fascinating because from the outside, yeah. it's all the same. Yeah. But in any, even the anarchists, you know, Emma Goldman, you know, got her start because her mentor, I forget his name, you know, he was against, I think, maybe violence against whatever. And he, she went on stage and hit, hit him with the face with a whip. So even back then when there were 10 anarchists, yeah. you had 11 factions. Yeah. So the point I make in the book, which I uh, bothers people, which makes me happy is, you know, far more white supremacists died fighting the Nazis than did urban feminists. So if you're going to conflate the Klan and the Nazis, you're not being historically accurate. And that is going to be a big problem because once you have a group like this that can point out that you are being intentionally deceptive, Right away, there's a loss of trust and they're gaining the trust because they're the ones who pointed out that you're not telling the truth. All right. So I want to ask you about the chapter um, that critiques democracy. Yeah. The case against democracy. Yeah, precisely. And and um, that was really it was I, I, I struggled a little bit. This is not your fault. It's probably mine. But I struggled a bit to figure out kind of what the overarching idea, if any, there was. And but, I, but I'm very sympathetic to and what I think might be the overall claim, which I took from my own reading of Carl Schmitt, right? A figure who is much beloved on the left and the right, to use the terminology we have been using, right? So it's, um, in particular, his the crisis of what the crisis of parliamentary democracy or parliamentarism. I'll have to look it up. You'll have to edit that. This sense in that chapter, again, correct me if I'm wrong, which I may well be, but my sense there's a sense in the chapter, right, that we're talking about political reasoning is perceived as being moral reasoning and yet also rational reasoning that these two things don't go together in some sense. Yeah. Right? Does that make sense? Of course. So, so pointing out that that reasoning about politics is not rational. Right. Um, and I wasn't, and I think that's absolutely hundred percent correct and something that we just simply don't take, you know, both sides probably don't take on board yeah. enough. And I'm just wondering if you could t- talk a little bit about more about that, but maybe even just like that chapter and your uh, sort of thesis in it in particular, because it, I took it to be core to um, an anarchist's positionality in the world, right? So one might ident- adopt an identity that is more or less aligned with anarchism because the best possible case morally that we could make for government I'm, I'm postulating this might be democracy and you've shown in the chapter as have Carl Schmitt and others, right? That democracy is problematic and incoherent. Yeah. That incoherent. That's absolutely right. Incoherent is a great word for it. And, and the, there's a book called the Machiavellians by James Burnham, mm-hmm. who is one of, who was actually friends with Trotsky and then became one of the early national review writers. Um, and you know, he goes, they all what do you mean? The well, Trotskyists? The national, yeah, the national oh yeah, that's one of my big yeah. lines is that the history of American politics is the Stalinist versus the Trotskyites, right? <laughs> um, so this book, The Machiavellians... I is, myself agree with you more than I expected. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, the, so the book, Burnham just goes over four people he identifies as Machiavellians who are Wilfredo Pareto, uh, Robert Michels, um, uh, Gaetano Mosca, and um, uh, Georges Sorel. Um who's a big lefty and what he regards as a Machiavellian is someone who views reality without um, any kind of rose colored glasses, someone who's like, all right, this is how democracy and politics really work. And one of the points is democracy is one of the few things that not only doesn't work in practice, it doesn't even work in theory Mm -hmm. because the quintessential example of the most democratic process is the town hall, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone in the town comes Everyone has their, their voice about what they want to say. Everyone hears their opinion. Even in a town hall, the most democratic model, you will have someone 
limiting the terms of debate, someone uh, giving time limits on what talk about, what the subjects are, calling on people. That person who does all those things is an elite. Mm -hmm. So even in the most basic model of egalitarian democracy, you're going to have an elite develop itself. So that is an important kind of starting point to kind of look at democracy, number one. Number two is the broader point. It makes no sense whatsoever if you stop to think about it, why just because someone is geographically proximate to you, they should have any say on any aspect of your life at all. You know, this is kind of a landline technology in a post-cell phone world is is a big one. And also this idea that democracy has to be winner take all. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, even if it's 70 versus 30, those 30 people just, you're SOL? Why? I don't care. That makes no sense. So this is one of... um because we want us to talk about concrete politics and maybe even some Canadian politics. Sure. And so the this is one of um, Justin Trudeau's failed promises. Oh, yeah, right? that they were going to have representation. Yeah. yeah. Precisely. Yeah. And yeah. and David, do you want to add? Yeah, that? absolutely. So I, I actually, I, I've worked at the municipal level. I was a, a planning commissioner. And uh, one of the things I learned that if you got really good at the rules, yes, you didn't, it didn't matter what position you had on the commission you could run it yeah and that was the thing like i was really good at this like sal that was a specific law about how this was passed what could be passed what could not be passed and i knew it better than anyone else right and because of that i would often and it was i didn't do it on purpose but you would end up yes. in terms and even when you're trying to get out of the way so you're right the elitism does enter in at that level and then also but we also have the underlying theory of democracy in the sort of the western sense is that all politics are local yeah. Right. You're challenging both of those. Yes, absolutely. And the other point is that it, and it's funny because people will accept these things conceptually, but won't apply them. I don't think any few people would disagree that Hillary Clinton will always have more in common with George Bush than she will with some janitor who, unlike her, had voted Democrat all his life. Right. But when you put that into practice, like they don't accept that, you know, these two parties or here you guys have three parties or even four or five now. Uh, it, it, it's they're like, oh, they really, really hate each other. Like at the end of the day, to use a horrible expression, there is an enormous amount of uh, collusion uh, between these different uh, elites to kind of maintain their hold on power. And, and a great example of this, you know, for better or worse, was the Trump election, where there was an absolute elite consensus that Hillary is going to be the next president. We're going to have regime rule. And it was basically Americans were told, look, this is what's going to happen. And you had organization after organization who had never endorsed a candidate for president before. There was some some Harvard group and yeah. like a national geographic, some randos. Yeah. And it, this was taken as prima facie proof how we pronounce it. It's a word I've only seen. Written. Latin's a dead language. So yeah, yeah. Thank know. you. Thank you. Um, proof that this is who you have to vote for. And the idea, again, that in a democracy, you can tell others who you have to vote for is also inherently uh, contradictory to the concept of democracy. I'm sorry. I'm going to, that's what we call a two finger question, which is a really dirty way of saying I have a question that directly corresponds with what you just said. So next question is the shocker. So yeah, yeah, (laughs) just wait for it. You've just arrived. So I want to hear, so, so there's like this idea that, um, so elitism and elitism has to do with concrete capacity to set the agenda. Yeah. The language I used in the book. I think that's totally right. I want to talk a little bit about, or ask you a bit about the economic component to that. Right. So there are so democracy, right. In some broad sense, uh, is a conceptual idea that I agree with you is 
uh, difficult to, if we're, if we're interested in making things coherent, which we may or may not be, but if we are interested in coherence, many analytical philosophers, moral and political are interested in the project sure. of coherence. But to what degree is like, so, so I, how do we bring in the, you know, for lack of a better word, late capitalist angle to that, right? So part of the thing that makes Hillary seem inevitable or establishment um, and also occupy the elite state as she did is her relationship to global capitalism. Yes, very and much. And neo, neo-colonialism, mm-hmm. which, of course, anyway, I'll leave it at that. I just love yeah. to hear your response. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I'm not sure I follow the question. So I think that one of the things that we, when we talk about power that is implicit into the way we talk about politics that we ignore, but I don't mm-hmm. think that you ignore it, and I know that you don't, is that there are bigger elements of power that are global. Because, oh, yes, absolutely. Of corporations yes. And the way that the global financial markets work. And Hillary was the, the candidate more close, even though she was not personally as rich as Trump, was more. She bragged about it. Yeah, she was more connected yeah. oh, to the elites course. of the world. Yes. And that's interesting because in Trump, in so many ways, was the more local candidate. Yeah. And how, how does that work in, in this sort of mind? It was amazing that, again, like when she was the Wall Street candidate, I think she had more contributions yeah. for Wall Street than anyone else. This, this, I, this is, it's always crazy to me when people, both right and left wing, think corporations are inherently like conservative in like the socially conservative sense. They, what if do you they go, care? but, but have if, you been to a pride parade? That, right. <laughs> <laughs> Times Square. Times Square was TD Bank, Bank of America. I, I had this. I had Times Square was covered in rainbows, yeah. and as soon as, as Pride Month was over, those rainbows vanished. And I said, yeah. only corporate America could make sodomy seem boring and uninteresting. <laughs> I was, I was like, I, it's just, it's amazing that you guys can take Caligula yeah. Yeah. and make him look yeah. into a stuffed animal, and it's. It, but well, the, he also had power. Well, sure, that's yeah. true. That's true. <laughs> but it is the the absolute. For example, another example is a uh, uh, like monopoly. Yeah. You know, they have like this feminist monopoly. Yeah. You know that they just came out with. But it's it's, it's yeah. You're oh yeah. Joking. Oh no, the oh, women when another they, article I have to write. When yeah. the women pass go, they get more money yeah. to make up for like the wage gap. Yeah. But the, yeah. But the irony, it, it, the it, irony it, of it, monopoly is that monopoly is a socialist. Yes. Brand. Yes. My friend wrote a book about it. The whole point was to teach kids yeah. that power gets concentrated in one individual yeah, that's, it's, and he yeah. becomes a monopoly. That's the where the name comes from. Yeah. One person it becomes the monopoly. Yeah, it shows you, it shows you that there's no collective action possible. Right. And that under the system, you must succumb to power. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, it, it, the, 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 one of the distinctions between the new right and conservatives is conservatives traditionally much more chamber of commerce yeah. whereas the new right takes breitbart's message which mm-hmm. is politics is downstream of culture mm-hmm. and it's like the, these i mean these corporations are playing one of the things that i disagree with the left a lot you have the elizabeth warren say these corporations are only interested in short-term profits at the extent of the earth they are playing the long game and they've been playing the long game for a very long time and they're very interested in keep i think 1984 is much less accurate than brave new world uh. Actually, this is what I say every day, actually, is that I think that Bring New World is, is about pleasure and it's about satiation. Yes. And I think that that's the key is that they, they understand that all you have to do is you push the dopamine buttons. Yes. Buttons yes. Long enough that people will be like, or sex, all these things. Yes. Liberate that. 
And then people will do whatever you want. Yes. And they'll be happy to do it because now they've got all their uh, Maslow's needs taken care of. Yeah. So uh, yes, I, I, the, the, uh, I mean, co- the corporate threat is very real, and it, I mean, the lefty critique that this is uh, kind of there's no patriotism. This is internationalist and, and just you know doesn't care about one country or another. I mean, whether good or bad, I think that's demonstrated constantly. Yeah. So actually, I want to ask you a question that that's a little more contemporary, and you don't have to answer this question. Sure. We can edit it out if you want. Oh. But I'm very interested in the impeachment proceedings in the States because it's actually an argument about nationalism versus internationalism. Okay. Who is doing it and how? So you have the Hunter Biden situation where you actually have a relative of a well-placed official doing things in a foreign country that are going to impact their policy. Yes. That the weight of that name means something. Yes. We know that this happens considerably throughout Washington and, and all the in both parties. In both in this, parties. The idea this is somehow localized to Biden's is psychotic. Right. And then you have a situation where Trump is actually saying, and I, I don't agree with Trump ever. He's saying, well, that seems like a bad thing. <laughs> and now people are like, saying that is a bad thing. And you're like, it's really interesting because it's like, it's like a shitty thing wrapped in a shitty thing wrapped in a shitty thing. And it makes you really understand that like global power is very complicated. And to see the Democrats stick, and I am a lifelong Democrat. I was a Democratic county person. I mean, like, you know, like I ran for office as a Democrat. I cannot believe this. Well, the one, let's take it, let's take it a step back to a thing where, because whenever you feel near Trump, they're like, they're, they shut down, right? Yeah. Let's take it to a step back to the 2016 election, WikiLeaks. And the complaint was, by exposing our malfeasance, you made us look bad and cost us votes. It's like, well, maybe you shouldn't be doing this malfeasance to begin with. Maybe you shouldn't be stacking the deck against Bernie and then lying about it. Debbie Wasserman Schultz was the head of the DNC at the time. They were were doing everything in their power to drag that mummy across the finish line come hell or high water. The debates were scheduled on like Sunday night 11 against football, like on a Memorial Day, like the most random times. And when, there was one on Halloween. Yeah, yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's the witch's holiday. Yeah. So they, and they asked Debbie Wasserman Schultz, they said, why are you having these debates at these like horrible times? She goes, oh, it's to maximize visibility. And it's like, well, she's really bad at lying. It's like, you're brazenly lying. You are doing it shamelessly. And you're doing this because you really want to have that first female uh, a nominee ever. And you call yourself the Democratic Party. So, I mean, that I think is a much better example than this Biden thing, um, because we're going to see how that that shakes out. But yeah, it seems like very odd to me, like you're saying that Trump is saying like, wait a minute, like this guy looked like he got off the hook because the vice president called you and threatened. Is that really true? Like, let me find out. It's like, how? I mean, if he had asked that question about Mike Pence's son, yeah. right, or a, a fellow Republican, w- w- I don't know that that would be a good thing or a bad thing, but I, it's not as unambiguous as people want to make it out. It, it seems more like due diligence. <laughs> yeah. And the, I also think the, the idea that this is a high crime and misdemeanor and treason that uh, here's the other thing of all the, the messed up things Trump has done and said, and with world leaders, this is the one that to me is, is mind boggling. So it, David, tell me if it, cause you've thought a lot about this as well, but is there, am I wrong to think that there's a link there to the sort of brouhaha and absolute moral outrage over 
SNC Lavalin? I think so too. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, have you been following this? So the SNC Lavalin scandal. Is that the Attorney General? Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. of course. Yes. Oh yeah. Yes. So do you want to say something about that? So how? I, I'm sorry. Like I don't know that much about Canadian politics. How is he not in jail? Oh, so this is <laughs> actually, this I, I'm going to come out on the other side of this. So I actually think that this is a, just a very basic case of natural protectionism that people will engage in as, you know, in the court. Because it actually what he did, so it's very complicated, so I think, the relationship between... So, so right, any, right. any Americans <laughs> who obviously only listen to American news and read American news websites, um, David, can you give us yeah. just the 30-second explanation <laughs> of this so-called so, scandal? Yeah. So SNC Lavalin is a Quebec-based company that um, does infrastructure projects around Canada and around the world. They're a major competitor to like Bechtel and, and huge companies like that. They do World Bank projects. Uh, they were implicated in a World Bank project that was in Libya, which, if you remember, uh, NATO, which Canada is a member and the United States is a member, bombed the shit out of. Yeah. Uh, afterwards, so anything they might have built there would have been gone anyway, and they're being re- they they were being prosecuted for some bribery under the Gaddafi regime, which we we could love to prove, but it'd be very difficult because he's dead because yeah. we bombed him. Yeah, and uh, you know, there's a lot of questions about whether they can c- continue on. There's a thing called prefer, uh, deferred prosecution agreements that are allowed under the OECD uh, rules. The OECD is like the the richest countries in the world all get together and come up with these ideas to make business more easy. What Trudeau did in this instance was that he recommended that there would be a deferred prosecution agreement. There's a very complicated relationship between what's a minister of justice, which is who works under the, the prime minister, and the um, attorney general who technically works under the queen mm-hmm. in some sort of capacity, mm-hmm. which is a very complicated pro- uh, professional position to be in. And he did what I think any world leader and any big country or any small country would do and said, hey, this is a big employer. Hey, maybe we lay off. So I, I agree. I'm like, maybe, but maybe not. But yeah, just to be clear, yeah. uh, um, uh, a DPA is sort of, it's not doing nothing, right? Yeah. So, so the oh, idea they have is to pay money and there's precisely. Things, so yeah. there's all sorts of things you can come up with mm-hmm. under a DPA that constitute um, dealing with the situation, uh, restoration, okay. et cetera. That wouldn't involve like a criminal prosecution that might dissolve the company. Yeah. So it's not it's not saying we're going to leave them alone. It's just a different yeah. kind of arrangement. Okay. And the argument, so just so people know, the argument was that it would save um, like thousands of yeah, it's like jobs. T- there's like 10, as well as jobs or something. Yeah, like keep yeah. the company. But I thought the whole thing was he denied having done this, and then it came out there was audio of him so, directing yeah. it. That's the bigger deal. No, that's that's really interesting. Yeah. There are some questions about who said what when, right? But then there's also questions about even if you did that, is that illegal? Sure. So that's that's the question. Well, I, I so, think yeah. what, the thing with like impeachment in the yeah. states, uh, it's it's a political issue. It's not a, a, yeah. a criminal issue. So it yeah. doesn't have to be illegal for some. Yeah. I don't think Nixon did anything illegally necessarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and that's certainly grounds for impeachment. Yeah. So I think that's the bigger question. When someone is using their political clout yeah. to do these shady things and then lying yeah. about it, that that certainly so, is scary. I'll tell you something very interesting. This the, they actually did have an ethics rule about this and the ruling about this and. The fine was five hundred dollars. Yeah. So that if that tells you how how actually they value, you know, because you want to like when you look at money, you think like how do you value things? And like we live in a capitalist society, we're in the West. We, you know, you could say this is a bad thing because it's if it was a fifty thousand, sure. like, that's a bad thing, right? <laughs> if yeah. you go to jail for five years, that's a bad thing. Right. Five hundred dollars, right? Yeah. So that's that's what Canada thinks of it. 
But this is the other thing is that it, there's no like democratic consequences either. I mean, we'll see. Well, we'll see. Right? <laughs> we have an election sure. in a few yeah, weeks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, and I know the conservatives just came up, you tied tied in the votes, but still, you know. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. But uh, but I, but the thing I wouldn't ask you about that is that yeah. we, do things like impeachment level the playing field in a way that it changes our discussion about how democracy works and whether it should. I I, I don't, I don't, what does impeachment have to do with democracy? No, I wouldn't, that, well, that's a great question. What does impeachment have to do with democracy? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. So that's what, that's what I was going to say. So we were were talking about the the Biden thing. We were talking about the SEC Longwood thing. And it made me think is that if we're talking about power, how does impeachment play into power? And do you see this impeachment rhetoric as being good Oh, I think think impeachment rhetoric is great because I'm someone who's in favor of trying to uh, have much political polarization as possible and trying to eliminate any kind of political discourse. So the more you have uh, animosity and brazen warfare between the two parties and even more, I think the healthier it is for everyone because then there's no possibility for collusion, which always inevitably leads to uh, state growth and oppression. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. So yeah, so I want to hear more about that, right? So your kind of affirmative position in all of this as as an anarchist, yeah. right? So if that's a, a being an anarchist is a is an attribute of identity sure. in that formulation, right? So so as an anarchist, yes. right? specifically as an X or Y or Z, what is that? You know, is there? A, t- tell me more about what that means. Well, it, <laughs> it means that state action is always bad. Uh, always, uh, at the very least, uh, you know, uh, um, redundant. Mm-hmm. And y- when you have the two parties in America, we have two uh, get together. It's always going to be deleterious to the nation as a whole. And good examples of this are the Iraq War, mm-hmm. uh, the mm-hmm. bailouts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it. Um, you know, things like uh, but these current budgets, which are just you know uh, huge budgets with basically everyone getting the handout. So bipartisanship is not the great virtue that they, the 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 people who are uh, edifying John McCain would like to say. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, that's, that's a great example. John McCain's signature issue, uh, signature uh, accomplishment was McCain-Feingold, which was struck down as unconstitutional. And this was a bill which made it a crime, possibly a felony, to run ads critical of a politician within X amount of months of an election. I think it was maybe ads run by corporations. Mm-hmm. The point is, uh, the lie that we are told is that in America, the first amendment, the most important speech to protect is political speech. And yet when they had their druthers, this is exactly the kind of speech that they tried to make illegal. Um, So yeah. And it was very proudly touted as a bipartisan bill. So yeah, when the two parties combine, it will be to protect uh, uh, Washington and the state against the, uh, the population. So, yeah. The bailouts is the best example of this. I mean, it, it's it's and the, the thing is, whatever uh, market goes down next, they would be happy to bail it out. And it's like you are rewarding uh, these companies. It's not like when a company goes bankrupt, the buildings dissolve into dust like Thanos. The buildings can be bought, and you know someone else is going to have those assets, and it'll be you know used more yeah, effectively. Everyone's going to want a high tower in, in, in yeah. New York City, right? Yeah, yeah. right. So it's yeah. just the it's CN like, Tower. Everyone's going. That's a cool place. You're right. It's <laughs> well, this building no longer has value on paper, so it's of no yeah. utility. So you know that we're the money be just yeah. taken from like the the middle class yeah. or even from the wealthy. 
and given to the ultra wealthy and and when they should be punished for what they caused to happen that is uh, is just and and, and again the, it's both parties that sat down and just overnight like yeah we're just going to pay for this so the, one of the things you're pointing out here is and hold on one more thing yeah. it also causes enormous moral hazard you know republicans often talk about if well and i think fairly if welfare is too lucrative at a certain point someone be like why am i going to go to work for $15 an hour, if I can sit at home for $13 yeah. an hour. And that's a, it's a yeah. rational calculation. Yeah. And the same thing here. Why shouldn't I take on riskier and riskier investments if I know if I collapse, yeah. I'm not going to get it taken yeah. care of? Why, why invest in treasury bonds if I can, I can you know, invest in a real estate investment trust right. that's based on condos that are never going to sell in downtown Toronto? Exactly, because yeah. I'm never going to have to see the consequence of my actions. It's all upside. I, I mean, it's, 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 it's unconscionable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's that's one of the moral calculation, calculations that I think that, that you're making that makes your, your argument interesting. Because I think that many people hear the word anarchism and they think that it's, a, it's yeah. an amoral philosophy. It's the most moral philosophy, in my view. That's interesting. So what, if... If that is the most moral philosophy, yes. What are the what? In this, I'm going to ask you a self-critical question. Okay, sure. Yeah, I know it's always a hard one. So, no, not really. In what ways is it less moral than you'd like it to be? In what ways does it um, fail? What ways does anarchism fail? I, I, I don't. And you can say no. I mean, that's fine. You can say it doesn't. But I, I'm asking you because you know. It's I, I don't know what you mean by fail. What do you so mean? What, okay, that's a great question. What would a failure under anarchism look like? Um. I would say, you know, strife, <laughs> uh, <laughs> mass murder, <laughs> like disease. Yeah, like, I mean, I think it's the yeah. same, for any, any yeah. philosophy, the, the yeah, failure look, would look the same. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, I actually don't think it would. Right. So the, the idea, um, if war and starvation and disease and mass suffering are actually completely accepted today as the status quo norm. Right. So, Actually, all of us who, and this, I believe my sense, I'm not an anarchist, but my sense from the anarchist community or whatever yeah. would be, for lack of a better word, and I know that there are, you know, fragmentation. Yeah, there's fragment. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there, that's actually going to be the next question I ask you. So the, my long view here is a discussion about society and community. But, but before I do that, um, then now I've kind of lost my train of thought. No, but it's to say that, like, the... All of us who participate in the system, whatever that means, whether it's voting, which you've written about and talked about, right? right? So even, so the bare minimum of participation is going in once every four years or depending on your jurisdiction, casting a vote, right? Which is a very febrile notion of, of participation in anything. And it's certainly not, I, I agree with you, it certainly doesn't constitute a political community in any right. meaningful sense, right? So the idea is that, um, do uh, you know, participation in the systems that we have actually only ever um, under the conditions of late capitalism, et cetera, that we're living under can only amount to participation and willing participation in a system that from the beginning condones exactly what you just referenced, the mass suffering, the mass war, the mass disease, et cetera, right? So all of us, especially those of us in the middle class, you know, whatever that means and higher and higher, are willfully participating in that in yeah. that system. And oh yes, for sure. In some ways, it seems like the that these things are actually prerequisites for our comfort. Yes. Yeah. I no. mean, that's, well, yeah, that's the other army. Well, that's that, because yeah. the state raises our children and teaches them this from kindergarten. Ah, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. 
what? Did I touch a nerve? Yes. So I only because I'll say this, like there's I'm really interested by so let's just back up a bit because there's a lot going on here and I wanna somehow keep like the keep a thread. Oh, this is the one that the lefties don't like when I say the first thing to no, abolish no, when no, I say no, the no. first thing to abolish oh. public education. No, I well, well I mean, actually, it depends on who uh, actually, actually no, no. Like, full hey, disclosure. We both it. no, I'm just saying full for disclosure. The recording. I, I, I was. Perfectly. You're the one that's talking over my mic. I'm sorry. So, she's, full, she's not sorry. <laughs> she's not sorry. Not sorry. Full it's like you. That's a lie. But full disclosure, we lie? both come from we come from union families of public school teachers. But okay. I do understand the criticism. Yeah. So when I wanted you to get to your point, and you say because of the way we raise our kids by the state, yeah, we have expectations of society. So go on. Well, my quote is uh, that people know me for is public schools are literal prisons for children and the only place many people will, inc- will ever encounter violence in their lifetimes. Um, it came over, it's came over from the Prussian model. The design at a public school is very much tall poppy syndrome where you are not encouraged to be a critical thinker. You're encouraged to be a cog machine. You're encouraged the idea that I have to sit in a room and seek the approval of this jackass at the front of the room, regardless of their qualifications, who are putting themselves in position better than me, and knowing that often that judgment isn't really a function of my quality of my work, but how much I've pleased and appeased them is a extremely sinister lesson to teach the children, an extremely useful one in a corporate sense. Uh, the idea that everyone has to work around the same work schedule. I wake up at 11, I go to bed at two. Why does everyone have to be nine to five? It makes no sense. This is very much a holdover. Um, also that everyone has to learn at the same pace is demented to me. Uh, that everyone has to be physically proximate is demented to me. Uh, that if one person has a problem, it's everyone's problem is also demented to me. I just had this uh, guy, um, Andy Pollock, his daughter Meadow was shot in Parkland. And the kid, Nicholas Cruz, I thought this was a... Like, like a Columbine situation, right? He told repeatedly that he's going to shoot up the school and they put him in special needs because regular kids don't think in these terms. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to eliminate the prison, the school to prison pipeline, what they called. So they were discouraging academic, uh, um, uh, the professors, the, the, excuse me, the teachers from calling the police on these kids because you don't want the kids to have a prison record and then they're screwed for life. So in order to protect these kids, People were murdered. So it's really kind of this, I mean, I, I could not be more against the concept of uh, public schooling, but also th- when you're teaching regimentation, again, some people want that, but the, the, it really hurts both the kids at the bottom and the kids at the top. And, you know, from a right set, right wing perspective, those kids at the top are the really important ones. So I'm going to hand this over to David Slavik for comment. Just no, but I want to say this because you know much more about the American schooling system than I do. And also you, and you might want to say just a word or two about that. You actually um, had a lot of contact, close contact, like basically not formally, but assisting different kinds of parents who were doing homeschooling yeah. in rural Pennsylvania. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So, so I just yeah. loved it, just because no, you have the experience yeah. so, and I don't. So it's interesting because I come from a, you know, my both are parents public school educators, I've taught college and things like that. So I, I'm in that I'm in that formal mold, but I had the opportunity to help develop a uh, learning resource library for homeschooling parents. And we had all kinds of parents. Oh, yeah. Left-wing parents, right-wing yep. parents, evangelical parents. Yep. Uh, people, we had some Baha'i people. Who, yeah, you know, it was of just, course. Like, very separate and different. Um, and 
uh, very high end students yep. and then students who are, who are on the autism spectrum, who are, who are working through some things yeah. socially. Libertarians. Like yeah. yeah. Interesting stuff. You know? <laughs> but, um, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely really interesting. And what we realize is that like, if you gave parents resources, mm-hmm. you could use state institutions to actually help that. Yes. But you, but by giving, taking the hand off the scale, it did help. And, you, and it really changed my mind about homeschooling in a way that I didn't anticipate. Uh, one of the things I resent enormously is this idea that if a child uh, can't sit still for eight hours, he has to be given medicine. Uh, you are, this is, this is, uh, uh, like, this is beyond Orwellian. This is yeah. post-Soviet. It's, yeah. it's just unconscionable. I mean, I can only agree with everything that you said. Oh, okay. I guess I totally agree with all of that. I think that's yeah, can't be argued with. Yeah. In fact, right? and, and, you're, point, and, and you're, I, you're talking to a very academic audience, and we were okay. saying yes. No, this yeah. fucking good life. Oh, oh, sorry. Okay. So, so I agree with all of that, but but I would just say I wonder whether, and I think this riffs on David's comment just now, is that actually you were you you were put in a position where state money yeah allowed you to help parents. You know, escape the state. To you, yeah. precisely. To use, <laughs> like, so, so actually, like, so it's 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 a conundrum. From, and I'm not. This is not a challenge to you. It's just a discussion. Yeah. It's a very friendly discussion, right? But so it's just a, it's an interesting, right? Yeah. If there there are ways in which we can shift power within the system to let's say in we can use the language that's used ideologically, right? So we mm-hmm. can we can as you, I think you mentioned levers, right? Mm-hmm. We can press harder on the lever of uh, quote unquote parental choice. And we can use mm-hmm. the resources um, that the state has to actually do that, right? Yeah. So there's a way in which the thing that's wrong is not so much the existence of the state, but the way in which the state, the state yeah. distributes power and resources within its um, situation with respect to education. Does that make sense? Sure. I, I mean, it's just a function in that I'm all for incrementalism and anyone who is not, who says, well, it, the state's all equally bad. That's a lie. If you have to choose between food stamps or drones for overseas, this is, yeah. you can't make that choice. It's a no-brainer. <laughs> but even, it's a no-brainer either side. Even if you tell me drones is better, yeah. you can't tell me that they're equal, right? Yeah. So yeah. one is going to be evil from whatever perspective. So I, I certainly agree that I, I think in a, a private society, uh, any kind of private uh, pro-education organization is going to be less bureaucratic and more effective with the allocation of those funds. Uh, but if, you know, if, if, again, because my view is public schooling is probably government spending at its worst, if this is something that happens and it's, you know, the government's just allocating the funds inefficiently, that's a huge step forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was an interesting sort of pilot program. So that was, that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know how it'll look down the road. I mean, that's the thing is that some of these programs that, that pop up can work really well and, and, and then sometimes they can't. So that's but it, it. I mean, it also speaks to the, um, how awful the state is where, I mean, in terms of economic terms, mm-hmm. if you have a product that is being given to you for free and rather than accept that product, you're spending tens of thousands of dollars for an alternative that in, in just in terms of like, like, like a, a price graphs, uh, and supply and demand curves doesn't seem to even make sense. Yeah. It's like if, if the choice is, would you rather have a free car 
or that, or, uh, you know, spend like hundred thousand dollars on a Porsche. Very few people are going to pick that Porsche, right? Because of, of course take the free car, but that's basically the choice making an education, either free or you spend all this money. It, I mean, that's how bad uh, and how desperate these parents are and often poor parents, as you've seen yeah. to escape, you know, state education yes. and they're right to do it and more power to them. And it's, it's really amazing to me how the big argument is, well, a lot of these parents are going to teach their kids to be fundamentalist Christians. Oh my gosh. Listen, it, that's, they were going to do that. Anyway. They were going <laughs> to, and, and, and I would say that that's not uh, inherently necessarily worse psychologically than what's being done to the public schools. Yeah. Give him the mic. Actually, I want to ask you a very interesting question. Okay. I'll be the we're, we're talking about uh, society, <laughs> culture, parenting, and things like that. I'm really interested to hear about what you think about Greta Thunberg. Oh, did you see my Twitter? No, no, no. I didn't look today. I kind of, I wanted to give myself a clean slate. I've been on so, a tear. So go ahead. Yeah. I was thinking you can only imagine the kids that were uh, too fucked up or not fucked enough, up enough when they were casting her. And it's uh, amazing how, I mean, I come from the Soviet Union. I was born in the Soviet Union. I came here when I was two, but I was raised in a Russian household. There's a character in... It's it's actually a longer thing to shake, I think, that people really... Oh, yes, it is. I of think course. That, you know, I worked in, in Serbia in the 2000s, and people were still oh, yeah. working through this stuff. And I think that, like, what in, in Yugoslavia, despite its complicated history, was the, like, mecca of socialism. Like, yeah. like the best case scenario. Yeah. And um, worked operated much better than a lot of other places. And it still ended up in trial. Oh, yeah, yeah. But you're from so you much different situation. Yeah, and, and there's a character that was taught in Russian schools called Pavlik Morozov. He was this kid, and his parents were like black market, let's say, selling grain. And he called the cops on them, and this was taught to school children that if your parents are doing something messed up, call the police on them. This yeah. is see something, say something. Yeah, and so to see a child, first of all, everyone listening to this was 16. The concept that anyone should listen to anything you have to say when you're 16 is demented. The What she was saying with a straight face, I, I've been laughing about it for days. I should be in school on the other side of the ocean. How dare you? Okay, listen, kiddo. I'm going to sit here and some 16-year-old foreigner is going to raise her voice to me? Who the hell do you think you are? And I had this other tweet. I go, can you imagine a little kid going to his mom being like, mom, can I address the UN? No, son, sorry. Like, you're not politically exploitable enough. Well, what can I do? Well, maybe if you die in a war, we'll just pass around your picture and use that to kind of, you know, gather people's sympathies. Um, and also, how is our science at a point where a 16-year-old understands it and can explain it to everybody? What are you talking? It makes, it's such brazen. Uh, it's like when you're kids, I I'm sure they had that here, and you would go to the pet store and they have those those uh charity things with like rabbits where they put dye in their eyes and be like, oh, do you want this poor rabbit to have dye in its eye? And of course you don't. Your heart goes out to it. It's like, oh my God, look at this poor kid. She's kind of twitchy, but not too twitchy because you want it to be Goldilocks. And we should basically care that she's freaking the F out. And I kind of had this line, like when, when male incels, uh, when male incels become violent, female incels become activists. I mean, she's a mess and it's, 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 it's so brazen. Uh, and it's like a Hamas tactic to use this child as a human shield, because then it's like, how dare you criticize her? It's like, well, if you're at Veruca Salt from Willy Wonka, 
You know, she just wanted her dad to give her a squirrel. This broad wants us all to change our lives, to change the weather. Like, I'm not, sorry, sorry, honey. Get back on your boat. You should be back at school. And uh, you've stolen my dreams and my childhood. The only person I know with access to a dream catcher is Elizabeth Warren. I've not stolen any of your dreams. So it is so brazen and shameless. And to hear adults look at this kid and be like, wow, she's so wise. It's such an emperor has no clothes moment to me. So what I would ask is that, um, and this is a collective issue, and I think this is one of the things that, like, I'm always very sympathetic to the concept of anarchism because I'm like, it sounds great. I like the idea. I like doing my own thing. Sure, you know that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah, who does it? Colin, do your own does thing. Does yeah. All right, I'm sorry. Yeah, but you're like working in government issues and stuff like that. You know yeah. that'll change. Yeah, your mind. Sure. You know, public schooling, etc. Yeah. And so my question is, is like. When so you can agree with climate change, you can't. You know that's that's a thing. Now, when we do get to collective problems, right? What what do we do under anarchism? Well, uh, same thing. Like for example, you see, anarch ninety nine percent of our interactions are anarchist already. Um, if there is a collective problem, like how to get people fed, you don't need the state to get involved. Uh, how do you get people to have clothing? How do you get people canceled? Uh, well, <laughs> that's when that's when the propaganda of the deed comes in, I believe, uh, and Leon Kozlov and, and stuff like that. But that's not really something I'm very fond of public, <laughs> publicly endorsing. Um, but there's all sorts of uh, you know ha ha of issues that permeate societies and populations, and, it, and issues such as cr uh, production distribution can be handled by the state, or they can handle privately, or they can handle on a local level. I mean, th this is not a big gotcha. Most things are handled, uh, uh, you know, through through uh, private industry. So maybe maybe it's me. It may well be me. It often is. But so private. In so I guess like. When I read, and, and by the way, in preparation for this, I reread a bit of Emma Goldman too. Like, okay. Anarchism, what's it all about? That, yeah, yeah. That is a, what is know, it? Yeah, yeah. Just yeah, yeah. called Pager. I did. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and um, so I, I totally, I am not a state, an, so I'm an international lawyer with a profound suspicion of the state and yes. state sovereignty. And actually, and right, so so it's misleading when people say, what well, think, oh, well, you're an international lawyer. You must have some respect. I actually have a profound disrespect for all of that because international law historically was designed more or less solely to advance colonialism yes. and global resource extraction on the backs of what we now call people who live in the global south, right? Yeah, local populations, yeah. Absolutely. And so so I'm not enchanted. So just to be very clear to everyone listening to you and everything, I'm not enchanted in any okay. way, shape, or form. We, we, got your, we got your virtue signal. But it's not a virtue. No, but it's an it's an opposite of a virtue signal, right? A vice signal. But you know, my vice signal. Thank you. I like my vice signal. Oh, my God. Great. I'm going to use that. So, but I'm just wondering, like, so, but also as a legal scholar, I think, okay, so there are different kinds of, of uh, law. Sure. And another word we could use for that would, say, would be to say there are different kinds of normative frameworks, sure. right? So a normative framework is a framework that exerts uh, some kind of authority or claim to authority over individuals' behavior. That could be state-made law. Sure. Or like at the kind of zenith of the idea. Sure. Or I guess the zenith of the idea is actually international law, right? So talking about Thunberg, whatever sure. comes out of the UN, blah, blah, blah. But loose and informal networks of people also create normative, yes, of normative course. structures, right? And so for, for critical social legal scholars like myself, we would say, well, it's all law. You know, I had this one professor who wrote a whole book about the rules of baseball. 
of as course, a normative absolutely. framework. So I'm thinking like, so, so is the, and this is, is the opposition to government, government by the nation state in its current iteration, or is the anarchist opposition to government simpliciter where government simpliciter can include like uh, informal kinship networks, for example? No, no. So it's definitely the state because the state is through force. So if I go join a private club and as part of my membership, I have to wear an orange shirt every time I'm there and they say, you, I've given you a warning, I've given you a warning, they have absolutely every right to kick me out and because I have voluntarily accepted the rules of this organization. And in terms of law, uh, you know, minarchists and, and classical liberals, you know, say that, you know, the government and law is, is the most basic form of government. And to me, that's one of the most indefensible aspects of government, because if I have a dispute with Macy's over a sweater, it, there's a few ways it's going to happen. I'm going to get my refund, maybe store credit, or maybe they're going to tell me, you know, get the heck out of here. But if I went through the legal system, I mean, the, people do not have access to the legal system. If the premise of a classical liberal democracy is that the legal system is there for everyone, even the poorest, to kind of have adjudication over property issues, it's a, that's a lie. Because as anyone who's had to deal with the court system knows, you a lawyer is more expensive than a surgeon. So it, it, it's 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 very weird that this is regarded as an example of government like fairness and efficiency. That's a I think that's a great place to end. Uh, but I think that that was that was really interesting. And honestly, I think you've been uh, a great proponent for your philosophy. Oh, good, it's great. And uh, and even in the areas where we disagreed, I thought it was delightful. Oh, good. I enjoy this as well. Oh, you're an absolute delight. Thank you so much, Michael Malice. Thank you. Great.